If you're here with us for the first time, we are working our way through the book of Acts on Sunday, and today we come to this, well, confusing and maybe confronting passage. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we sit under it. Heavenly Father, we, uh, in humility, come to you and ask for your help. We have your word in our hand, inspired by the Spirit. We have that same Spirit in us, and we pray that he might be with us, working, that we might understand this passage, uh, that you might grant us the humility to sit under it and be shaped, challenged and encouraged by it. Amen. Well, in 1980... One of the top-selling chocolates was this, was Rollo. Rollo mainly sold well in 1980 because it had this really uh, catchy ad campaign and it had a slogan that got repeated in pretty much every school and workplace around the country. Does anyone remember what the slogan was? Do you love anyone enough to give them your last Rollo? The idea was that a Rolo chocolate was so great that it was a real sacrifice to give your last one to somebody and that if you actually managed to give your last Rolo to someone, then it really meant they were someone special. <coughs> and in 1980, there were these TV ads of couples who were breaking up with each other uh, because one of them couldn't prove their love by giving the other their last Rolo. And the ad closed with this line, do you love anyone enough to give them your last Rolo? Uh, That actually became a way in 1980s of asking somebody out on a date. You'd just kind of stroll up to them on the playground and you'd give them an innocent-looking chocolate and then you would say, hey, it's my last (laughs) Rollo. And wink, wink, nudge, nudge, everybody knew what you meant. Simpler times. Now, uh, that actually happened. If you think I'm making that up, uh, this couple popped up in my news feed a couple of years ago. This is Richard and Lynn Brooks, who started dating in 1984 after, quote, Richard gave me a card, some flowers and his last Rolo. Now, Lynn never ate the last Rolo and kept it for 33 years. You can see it uh, there in the photo. Uh, let me read you a line from the, the article. After marriage and 33 years and three children later, Lynn says that old disintegrating chocolate is one of their most treasured possessions. It was an it was a brilliant marketing line. It really was. Do you love someone enough to share your last Rolo? The idea that this Rolo chocolate was so great uh, that it was a real sacrifice for you to give it to somebody else, uh, that you could tell that you were really loved if somebody gave you something so valuable. Now, the idea that a Rolo chocolate is that valuable is, is you know, it's a bit silly, but the sentiment, the logic is right. You can tell if somebody really loves you by what they sacrificially give to you. And with that in mind, this morning we hit Acts chapter 4 and 5 and we see how much the members of this early church loved each other by what they shared and what they gave. They gave much more than their last Rolo. Let's pick it up in chapter 4, verse 32. 4, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. So notice they are one heart and one mind. That's because they share one saviour. They have a common experience of being saved by the Lord Jesus. 
and that forges them together. They are part of a new family so that nobody claimed any of their possessions were their own but willingly shared everything they had with those in need. That's what you do in a family. You share stuff that you have with your family, especially especially if someone in your family is in real need. Imagine that happened in your family. Maybe your, your mum or your brother or your sister, for some reason, fell into real, real need. Maybe they lost their health, but they can't work, they can't pay the bills, they lose their house, they're out on the street. What would you do? Well, you'd be moved with concern as you see someone in your family in real need. You would not think in terms of, this stuff is mine, you can't use it. You'd happily share, wouldn't you? Whatever you had to help your struggling family members, whether it be your house, your food, your money. That's what's going on in Acts chapter 4. These Christians were one heart. They were one mind like a family, so they shared everything they had with any Christian brother or sister who was in need. And the result, did you notice it? The result was there was not a single needy person in the church. Just pick it up halfway through verse 33, where it says, and God's grace... And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, what's the effect of God's grace? Next verse. That there were no needy persons among them. Because from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, in the first few chapters of Acts, which we've looked at over the the last three weeks, we have seen God empowering his church to do what? We've seen God empowering the church to go on mission, to boldly preach about Jesus. But the sign of God's grace being powerfully at work in the church is not simply mission. It's not simply the bold preaching of Jesus. It's also that they love each other. That they love each other so much that they physically care for each other. So much so that there's no needy person in this church in Acts chapter 4. What we see here is that genuine Christian fellowship, where God is powerfully at work, has mutual love, not just the mission of preaching Jesus. Genuine Christian fellowship has mutual love, not just mission. How would you finish that verse for UCI? You know that verse that said, and God was so powerfully at work in them that? How would you finish that sentence for us? Would you say, God was so powerfully at work in St. Matthew's UCI that they ran seven Christianity, explored courses a year, and over the last four years, dozens of people have become Christians and we've grown in number? All those things are true. And all those things are evidence of God at work, but this passage wants to know if we can also finish that sentence by saying, God's grace was so powerfully at work at UCI that they loved each other and looked after each other. Because genuine Christian fellowship doesn't just have mission, it has mutual love. And Luke gives us this really wonderful example of somebody in the church whose God's grace is so powerfully at work in that he dearly loves his brothers and sisters in Christ and looks after them. He's there in verse 36. He's a guy called Joseph. Look at what he does in verse 36. Joseph, 
a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So Joseph has such a reputation for this kind of generous love and care for his brothers and sisters in Christ that he gets a nickname. The apostles nicknamed him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. God's grace is so powerfully at work in him that he sells a field to care for his brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need. He sells a field. That's his portfolio. That's his retirement safety net. That's his capital and security. He sells that to provide for needy Christians. And that is amazing. There's no wonder they call him Barnabas, son of encouragement. I mean, how encouraging would it be to have somebody like that around? It's amazing, but I think straight away it does raise for us some questions. Questions like this. Are we supposed to be doing that? Does God expect me to sell the stuff I have, my possessions, and give to needy brothers and sisters in the church? We've got to ask that question because actually some people through history have said, yes, Acts 4 is teaching that God's expectation is that as a Christian you don't own anything personally and that you sell your stuff and renounce personal ownership of your things and kind of give everything that you have to the church and to the needy. So people have said that and so we need to wrestle with that uh, this morning. I want to start by saying that's not quite what's going on in Acts 4. Uh, Look closely at verse 34. See halfway through verse 34, look at how it describes this action. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them. So notice that, from time to time. Uh, This didn't happen all the time. It didn't happen every time when somebody became a Christian and joined the church and had to renounce personal ownership of their stuff and give it to the needy. It happened, but it happened from time to time as people saw need. Also, notice that the verse says, from time to time, people sold the houses they owned. Owned. That private ownership still existed in Acts chapter 4. People still owned stuff. But God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that from time to time, individuals expressed their love and care for needy, struggling Christians by selling the stuff that they owned to care for their new family. So we do want to reject that idea that sometimes pops up that this passage shows God's expectation that as Christians we kind of renounce personal ownership of stuff and and just give everything away. But please, please, please don't let that correction allow you to ignore the encouragement and the challenge of this passage. This is hugely encouraging and it's hugely challenging because this actually happened. But we're not reading a parable of Jesus here. We're reading Luke's history of the church. And historically, Barnabas did this. He sold his field, he sold his security, and he used it to love and care for struggling brothers and sisters. He did that. And and in a world consumed with purchasing and buying and personal acquisition and growth, he did the opposite. He sold. He sold his capital to care for his needy Christian brothers and sisters. Barnabas was not the only one in the early church and he's not been the only one through history who has done that kind of thing. That is hugely encouraging, I think, 
What a legend. No wonder they called him son of encouragement. It's super encouraging, but it's also challenging because although God doesn't command that we do that kind of thing, he does command that we use the stuff that he has given us for the love and care of our brothers and sisters. God commanded his people in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, that there should be no needy person amongst you. That's what he said. Similarly, in the New Testament, he urges us as his New Testament people to lovingly and generously care for those in need. Christian community is supposed to be a place of mutual love and care for others where we use what we have to care for those who do not have. Uh, And that does happen today. We're in a church where I know uh, that people have paid large medical bills for others here when they haven't been able to. And they've done that with no expectation of ever being reimbursed. People here have rented accommodation, rented houses, roofs over people's head for those that needed it. It happens in joy as God's grace is powerfully at work in people so that they lovingly use the stuff that God has given them to love and care for brothers and sisters in need. But that might raise some more questions for us as we wrestle with this. I mean, we might say, okay, well, maybe Barnabas had to do that kind of thing in the first century because there was no Centrelink, there was no kind of safety net. Uh, We don't really live in a community here in, in Shenton Park where Christians are in great like need, like generally we're pretty wealthy and pretty well off and well, okay, that is, that is true but we, but we do have occasional needs of brothers and sisters but even though it is true that we live in a very wealthy uh, place, in Acts chapter 4, the reason that they cared for struggling brothers and sisters wasn't because they attended the same church in a wealthy area. It was because they had one heart and one mind. It's because they were united to Jesus, which is true not just of Christians in our own local church, but that's true of every Christian around the world, many of whom are in real physical need. And that is why the the Christians here in the book of Acts don't just care for Christians in their city They also care for struggling brothers and sisters in different parts of their world. And when we get to Acts chapter 11, that's what we're going to see. Because there's this famine that ravages the country. And Christians who have food in other parts of the country start sending help to Christians in different areas that don't have it. And I want you to notice the reason. Let's just jump forward a few chapters to Acts 11. It's on screen. The disciples, as each one was able decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters. Notice that? For the brothers and sisters living in Judea. They did this, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Now, they don't attend the same church. They don't even know who these people are. They don't live in the same place. But their compassion for struggling brothers and sisters comes from the fact that they are brothers and sisters. One heart, one mind, one family united in Jesus. And friends, we have brothers and sisters around the world. They're our family. And some of them are really struggling. But Barnabas is famous in Acts chapter 4 for sacrificially giving to meet the needs of his brothers and sisters. That's not all he did. 
before he died, uh, close to the turn of the first century, he started a website, uh, a website called Barnabas Fund. Um, I, I suspect he didn't start it. I think Christian started it many, many millennia later in his name. But they started it to allow Christians like us to do what Barnabas did, to care for struggling brothers and sisters in different parts of the world. You know, you can log on to Barnabas Fund uh, and you can provide housing for Christians who lost houses in parts of the world where the government burnt their houses down because they're a minority religious group. You can log on and you can provide clean drinking water to brothers and sisters who have never had it. Or you can help your brothers and sisters in Bangladesh who are struggling uh, after being flooded from a monsoon. You see, to kind of to read Acts chapter 4 and to say, well, you know, we don't really live in a community of Christians that is kind of having a great need or are really struggling. I think that is to have a really small view of Christian family and community. Because Christian family and community is worldwide. And some of our brothers and sisters are really struggling. And Christian community in Acts 4 is supposed to have mutual love, not just mission. How amazing is Barnabas? Uh, He is thoroughly amazing. In fact, he's so amazing that when we were studying this passage a few weeks ago, um, you know, St. Matt's staff, I won't name who it was, lest their wife panic, but one of the the guys said, oh, Barnabas, what a legend, what an awesome name and nickname. I might have another kid just so I can call him Barnabas. Wouldn't you love a nickname like that? Wouldn't you love a reputation like that? Like that. The kind of reputation for the care of the needy that saw people a thousand years later set up web pages with your name. So instead of Barnabas Fund, the Mike Horgan UCI Fund, just because you had such a reputation. Now, do you see what I did there? I looked at Barnabas's reputation for mutual love and generosity, and I wanted that kind of reputation for myself. Enter Ananias and Sapphira. Let's pick up the story from chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and you have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold? Wasn't the money at your disposal? Who made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died and a great fear seized all those who heard what happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. Whoa. Uh, This used to be, for me, such a confusing passage as a young Christian. Because on the surface, it looks like God strikes him down because he sells a field and doesn't give all of the money to the church to look after the needy. It it looks like God has this expectation that Christians are to kind of sell everything they have, and if they don't, God totally judges them. No, 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 that is not what is going on in this passage. Come with me and take a close look at what is happening here. The the issue is that Ananias and Sapphira aren't financially greedy and keep some money for themselves. That's not the issue. 
they're actually not financially greedy. They're actually financially generous. They sell a field and they give a big chunk of it to the needy. That's generous. If somebody did that here, would we not think that was really generous of them? So the issue isn't that they're greedy and they keep some money for themselves. The issue is they pretend. They pretended they gave all the money. They pretended, in other words, to be like Barnabas. See, look closely at Peter's rebuke in verse 3. The issue is they've lied. Verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold? Wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? Now, look closely. What is the thing he has done? You have not lied just to human beings but to God. The thing is they've lied. They've pretended that they were like Barnabas and gave 100% of their land. Now they didn't have to sell the land, they chose to sell it and give some to the needy, which is super generous. The issue is they've lied. They've pretended that they were like Barnabas and gave everything. And you can see really clearly that's the issue because after, Barnabas, after Ananias dies, his wife Sapphira comes in and she's unaware that their lie has been discovered. And look what happens in verse 7. About three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Here's the lie. Yes, she said, that's the price. You get the impression, don't you, that if she said, no, no, that's not the price, we sold the land for much more than that, this is just the bit that we wanted to give to our struggling brothers and sisters, Peter probably would have said, right, thanks, that's super generous. Thank you so much for your love and care. But he doesn't because the issue is the lying. Now, why do they lie? Why do they lie about the amount? Well, I think given that Luke puts this directly after the Barnabas account, I think we're supposed to see that they are lying because they want a reputation like Barnabas, the one, the one who gets the nickname. They wanted a reputation like him, the son of encouragement, and so they lie to make themselves look more generous than they were. It's fake news. Now, we get that lying isn't good, but God's reaction here just seems way over the top, Right? Why? What's going on here? Why does God judge this lie so intensely? Uh, We really need to understand that, otherwise this passage is just thoroughly confusing. Uh, Three reasons why what they have done is really serious. Reason one is Ananias and Sapphira, they're not simply lying to church members, they're lying to God. Notice Peter twice highlights they're not lying to humans but to the Holy Spirit and to God. Secondly, this is religious hypocrisy at its worst. Publicly pretending to be more generous and godly than they really were. And Jesus hates religious hypocrisy. Remember in the Gospels how often he gets angry with the Pharisees because they're hypocrites. Remember he accuses them of pretending to be something in public that they're not in private. He accuses them of praying on the street corners so they'd be seen by men and people would say, wow, look at their religious devotion. 
Remember, he accuses them of fasting and disfiguring their faces so everyone would know they're fasting and say, wow, those guys are amazing. The Pharisees, they pretended to be something in public that they weren't in private. And Jesus hated that religious hypocrisy in the Gospels and he still hates it now in the book of Acts as he reigns from heaven, especially when it happens in his church, in his name. So they're lying to God, not just to people. They're being religious hypocrites. They're like the Pharisees of the New Testament church. And thirdly, and most seriously of all, and if we don't understand this, we won't get God's action. Thirdly, Satan is involved here. Did you notice that when we read it? Look at verse 3. When Peter is inspired by the Spirit, he says this, Ananias, how is it that Satan that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit. Satan has filled Ananias' heart, meaning Satan has tempted him, has motivated him to want something and to go and get it. Satan has whispered in his ear, Hey, Ananias, look at the reputation of Joseph. Look at the nickname they gave him, Barnabas, son of encouragement. They haven't given you a nickname. Do you want a reputation like that? Well, you can have a reputation like that, Ananias, for being really generous, and it won't even cost you a field. Just sell the field you have. Keep most of it for yourself, but lie. Pretend you gave it all. Fake it. And if somebody ever asks you or your wife, is this the amount you sold the field for? Just say yes, and they will respect you like Barnabas. This is not simply Satan's plan for the downfall of Ananias and Sapphira. I think in the context of Acts, this is Satan's plan for the downfall of the church. Because hypocritical Christians that pretend in public to be one thing but in private are another, always damage the church. And between us, how many people do you think we could list that have left the church, that have rejected Christ because of religious hypocrisy. We would write a very long list, I suspect. Because Christians who pretend to be one thing in public but in private are another, damage the church of Christ. And most dangerous of all in Acts 4, Satan hasn't tempted them to kind of fake a prayer life or to fake some kind of Bible reading habit. Do you notice what he's got them to fake? He's got them to fake love. He has got them to fake love and care for the needy in their church. And I don't think there could be anything else in the world as toxic and as poisonous as fake love. I just imagine if I did that with my kids, that one day my kids worked out that actually I don't really love them. I've just been faking it so that people at church would say, wow, what a loving, devoted father. My kids would be in therapy for years, wouldn't they? That's the kind of thing that would just destroy my family. So how damaging, therefore, to this new church family do you think it's going to be? See, make no mistake, this is an internal attack on the church by Satan so that religious hypocrisy and of the worst kind of fake love enters the fragile new church just as it's getting started. I'm indebted to uh, another minister who once used the city of Troy 
and the Trojan horse as an example here. You know that story? When the Greeks uh, attacked the city of Troy, uh, their first method was what? was full-on physical attack. They besieged the city with physical force. They rammed the gates. They had archers. They had soldiers. But the physical attack didn't work. It's the same with Satan. His first attack on the church is physical. We saw it last week, persecution. We saw last week the apostles, they are preaching the gospel. The church is growing and the apostles are arrested. They are jailed. They are brought before the Sanhedrin. But just like the physical attack on the city of Troy, it doesn't work. The apostles just keep preaching. Uh, They withstand the persecution and they keep preaching and the church keeps growing. And you know what happened next in the story of the city of Troy, don't you? After the Greeks work out that they couldn't physically uh, beat this city, after they work out they can't destroy it from the outside, they try and destroy it from the inside. An internal attack. The army pretends to leave and they leave behind this enormous wooden horse and the city of Troy are like, what's that thing? They open up the gates and they bring it into the city. But inside the horse are hidden Greek soldiers who at night, when the city is asleep, sneak out and open the doors and in floods the army and destroys the city from the inside. So too Satan. Physical persecution from the outside has not worked And now he attacks from within. He plants a wooden horse, Ananias and Sapphira. He wheels in religious hypocrisy, fake love smuggled through the walls of the church to spread, to destroy, to discredit, to dishearten and to hurt. But just like last week when God protected his church from physical threat, this week he protects it from internal threat. He destroys Satan's wooden horse before it destroys the church and he judges Ananias and Sapphira. And that's why Peter says, Ananias, how has Satan so filled your heart? I think it's helpful to to notice that Ananias and Sapphira are a repeat of another couple. Have you noticed Ananias and Sapphira, they're a repeat of Adam and Eve. Think of the similarities. In Eden, God creates a people, a a new community to be with him, Adam and Eve. It's the start of a community with God and Satan destroys it from the inside. Satan tempts that couple. He tempts Eve with Adam's full knowledge to do something that destroys this community with God. Satan gets inside and spoils it. And in Acts 4, it's happening again. God has created a new people, a new community to be with himself, and Satan tries it again. He gets inside and he tempts a couple. Ananias, with Sapphira's full knowledge. But unlike Eden, the difference is God stamps it out. Can you you now see that this passage is not about financial greed? I know sometimes on the surface it looks like that. That is absolutely not what is going on This is about Satan's Trojan horse. It's about smuggling in religious hypocrisy in the young church to taint it, to bring it down. And it's only when we see that, I think, it's only if you grasp that that we'll start to understand God's actions here. This is about protecting the church from Satan's schemes. 
So if you get that, I don't think you need to be worried uh, as a Christian that God is just kind of waiting for Christians to, to make mistakes that he might strike them down. That's not what is going on in this passage at all. God is not waiting in heaven and watching Christians just to see them trip up so he can judge them. No, God has done the very opposite. Hasn't he? He has sent his son Jesus to be struck instead of us. That's how we know God loves us. He has not simply given us his last rollo. He's given us his one and only son that we know we might be loved. So that we know that we have no fear of God's judgment, for it's fallen on Christ instead of us. And that is not what this passage is about. So you don't need to fear, like if you read this, that God is waiting to judge you. He judged Christ instead of us, that we have no fear of judgment. But that corrective being said, Ananias and Sapphira does show us how toxic religious hypocrisy is. A fake devotion to God is thoroughly toxic. Uh, This passage has really kind of got in my face this week. It has really kind of wriggled under my skin and it's forced me to ask myself some questions of myself. I want to show you the questions that it made me ask because I'd actually love it if we asked this of ourselves as a community. It forced me to ask questions like this. Is there anything I do or say with the intent of making me look more godly and more spiritual than what I really am, because that's just not lying to people here. That's lying to God. It's fake news. Is there something that I do that, actually, I just can't wait for others here to notice so that people would see me do that thing and think, man, he's so wise. He's so devoted to God. That's what Ananias and Sapphira did. Are my public acts of devotion the same as my private acts of devotion? Is the way that I pray in growth group the same way that I pray in private? Because for Ananias and Sapphira, they won't be. Ever found yourself attracted to some other Christian and you start to develop some spiritual disciplines just to impress them? You pray more, you read your Bible more, and you really want them to notice that. It's fake news. And worse still, I think the the question that this passage really wants me to ask of myself is this. Like Ananias and Sapphira, have I ever faked mutual love for other Christians? Have I ever said to people, I'm going to be praying for you, where in the back of my head I'm like, actually, I'm probably not. Isn't that faking mutual love and care for needy Christians, that's exactly what Ananias and Sapphira did. Now, if you are as broken, I mean, maybe I'm just more broken than you, but if you are broken as badly as I am, it won't take you very long to find an area in your life where you are portraying yourself as better, as more devoted to God than what you really are, and you're doing it to just win the respect and approval of others. Well, if that's you, like it is me, thank God. Thank God that he loves you so much that he shared, he gave his one and only son, Jesus, so that Jesus might die under God's judgment for our sin instead of us. Such is God's love for his people. That is amazing 
amazing sacrificial love. And it's that kind of amazing sacrificial love that God calls us to have for other Christians. The Acts chapter 4, I think it is showing us that Christian community is to be a place of genuine mutual love for brothers and sisters in Christ, just like Barnabas. I thank God there are many people at St. Matthew's that are like Barnabas, and my prayer is that that would just be us more and more. Wouldn't it be awesome for us, all of us, to just become more and more like that, more and more like Barnabas? Well, for that to happen, I think two things need to follow. Step one is stopping the printing press of fake news. And step two is asking for God's help. It's asking for God's grace to be so powerfully at work in us that we love and care sacrificially for our needy brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a wonderful vision. Why don't we pray now and we're going to ask for God's help to do exactly that. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you loved us so much that you gave your son Jesus. You were were not selfish, you were not self-centred, but you freely and sacrificially gave in love and care for us to meet our needs, our deepest need. Father, please create in us the same kind of sacrificial giving love for others. Lord, may your grace be so powerfully at work in us that we use the resources we own to care for our needy brothers and sisters here and all around the world. And Lord, as we do that, please protect us from desiring a reputation of generous givers. Help us desire your reputation, not ours. Help us desire the easing of poverty and need, not the swelling of ego and reputation. Father, we pray that you would indeed be powerfully at work in us, that we might love and care for those of us here in need and for those of us around the world in need, for our spiritual family of brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, by God's grace,